thanks for coming tonight. I know we're expecting some snow, so you you braved it. That's great. Um, I'll stay, I'll try to stand over here and not pace too much. So that was a good intro. So you don't really need too much more for me <laughs> about um, about what we're going to talk about. Um, the reason I picked this topic is because, as a dietitian and someone in like wellness nutrition spaces. I hear so much about elimination diets and like I don't eat this and I don't eat that, uh, you know, kind of thing. Has anyone ever gone on an elimination diet? Or said, I don't, has anyone ever said the phrase, I don't eat blank? <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. No shame. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the times, not always, but a lot of the times, that, that step in our kind of dietary journey doesn't necessarily yield the results we're looking for. Um, And sometimes it does, and we discover we have some food allergy or something like that. But typically, when I see see clients, um, a lot of times what I'm finding is that folks are missing a lot in their diet. Sometimes we get, especially folks who are like focused on eating healthy. I see a lot of people who probably like to eat healthy here, (laughs) which is why you're here. and we, get, can, we can really get focused on, like, what we take out. Because there is a lot of, no kids, there's a lot of crap. Oh, one kid, sorry. <laughs> um, there's a lot of junk in the diet of, like, the modern world. And certainly my, my whole point with this talk isn't, like, you can kind of do whatever you want as long as you eat these certain foods. Not necessarily the point. But I think when we, when we focus on not eating this and that, you know, this list of things we don't eat. A lot of times we take out whole, whole groups of nutrients that are totally missing in the diet. We take out enjoyment from eating, which food primarily is fuel, but I do think there's that, that 20% that should be for enjoyment and celebration and, and gathering. And when we get on these really restrictive diets, a lot of that's taken away. Um, and a lot of times we're not very fun. <laughs> Um, not fun at parties, and it's really hard to go out to eat and, and eat with others, and so it can take a lot of that part of, of eating away and add a lot of stress or fear around food, and that doesn't have to be there. Um, so that's kind of why I, why I chose this topic and why I think it's so important, and, and it kind of leads into something that when Christina introduced me, which is kind of my lens with, with nutrition in general is what we call ancestral diets, traditional diets, and if you haven't heard of that, um, it's, it's kind of a broad category describing dietary principles that try to reflect the be- as best we can foods that our ancestors would have eaten, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, way before food processing. Um, maybe you've heard the phrase, like, eat like your grandmother ate, although we're getting far enough along in our uh, generations that maybe eat like your great-grandmother ate, depending on how old you are. Um, so, so that's not necessarily the best advice anymore. But kind of the idea that going back is, is the way forward, certainly not like lab-grown meat, right? <laughs> so our ancestors were very, very smart. They knew some things. So we'll just dig in. So that's, that's my key takeaway. If what you add to your diet is more important than what you eliminate. So much more freeing, for sure. So we're going to talk about six main six main things that are missing in the, in the modern diet, even healthy ones. So that's kind of the, the six we're going to talk about. There's certainly more. <laughs> There's a lot of things that are missing in, like, especially if you're already, or if you're not already eating, like, hey, I'm pretty, pretty generally healthy. Like, there's going to be more than this, but these are some things we're going to focus on. Uh, and so there is going to be time for questions at the end if you have, like, a really burning question, I think that's fine if you want to ask it. I really like that, but we're going to have a big chunk of time for questions, so don't sweat it. Maybe if you're taking notes, if, you know, I don't want you to forget it. Okay, so the first thing that I see a lot missing in, in, uh, in the modern diet, even in healthy ones, are what I'll just call healthy fats. The word healthy is kind of like it almost loses its meaning at this point um, because there's so many different versions of what people consider to be healthy. But I'm going to just, I'm going to use it here anyway. So, um, or traditional fats is another way. So some of the things that that means to me 
is, I'll start with the second point, which is primarily animal fats. Um, I see a lot of avoidance, even in, even in people who are trying to do their best and eat healthy, uh, avoidance of animal fats. So that would be things like lard, beef tallow, um, and not just rendered fats, but also butter, eggs, um, meat, meat that has fat on it. You know, we, I, I remember growing up, we'd get like the 90 or 97% lean beef, and you're like, this, is, this tastes like nothing. <laughs> um, better add a lot of spices. Uh, so this is, this is a big thing I think is missing, and as well as fish. I think, um, especially where we live, Obviously, it's hard to get a lot of fish, but this is, this is something I think is really important. Um, and, you know, that kind of, I'll, I'll hop down to point four, which is there's an ideal ratio that our bodies need of omega-3 or omega to omega-6 fatty acids. So those are two different types of essential fatty acids. Um, the omega part just has to do with their uh, molecular structure. But um, omega-3s that you've probably heard of from fish and things like that, there's small amounts in, in some plant foods and some seeds like walnuts, but they have very poor conversion in the body. So the primary source is going to be, um, is going to be animal foods, particularly, particularly fish. And then in a ratio of one, parts, you know, one part omega-3s so to one part omega-6, which omega-6s are going to be the foods, uh, fats found in like seed foods. So those aren't to be avoided, so that'll pop us up to point one, which is to avoid industrial seed oils. It's not to say we don't need omega-6. They're essential, and you can get some serious health problems if you don't have them, but most people get plenty of omega-6 in the diet, even when avoiding seed oils. So the, the reason we want the, this ratio of one to two with omega-3 to omega-6 is that's kind of the ideal ratio to prevent a lot of inflammation, um, which we know is kind of the root of most especially chronic illnesses. Um, so the industrial seed oils are going to be things like canola, soybean, things that say vegetable oil, corn oil, peanut oil, um, those that use a lot of processing. They are already rancid on the shelf. They use even, even the, you know, organic-y ones often use um, solvents to extract them or high heat. And so by the time they reach a shelf, usually in a clear bottle, they're already highly oxidized, they add deodorizers and all sorts of things that you don't need. By eating you know, a, a diet that's rich in whole foods, you're going to get enough omega-6. Some plant oils are okay, however. Um, and I'm not, and obviously, you know, with, my, with the lens being like, what did ancestors eat? People, especially around the equator, ate a lot of plant oils, um, particularly from tropical sources like coconut and palm, which are high in saturated fats and Guess what? They didn't have any heart disease. <laughs> they, just, they just didn't because that's not the cause. So um, olive oil, avocado oil are other plant oils that are going to be okay to use. Sesame oil, as long as you don't heat it. Um, but there's been such a focus in the last several decades on avoiding fats, right? I'm sure everyone's heard, like, eat a low-fat diet or, you know, that, <laughs> that fat causes heart disease or, or something silly like that. So... We know that's not true. <laughs> there are lots and lots of science. And also, when we, study, when we study ancestral diets and the people who ate them, they ate a ton of animal foods. They ate quite a bit of fats. I mean, people who were in what's now Alaska had almost an, you know, their diet was essentially ketogenic. They have a genetic uh, polymorphism that makes them not go into ketosis, but that's... <laughs> another point, but they ate very, very, very high-fat diet and almost no plant foods, as you can imagine. Not a lot of plants grow up there, so no heart disease um, and very, very healthy people with longevity. So it's the processing that's really the problem, and this, this focus on trying to take out animal fats has not made people healthier, right? Ever since the 50s, when they said, when they put out the diet heart hypothesis, and people started to have things like margarine and hydrogenated oils and things and making them shelf-stable and really trying to avoid, avoid lard and, and those things that our recent ancestors ate. Heart disease has only increased. Like, there's never been a decrease in heart disease since the 50s, ever. Um, and cancer and all these things that are inflammatory in nature, they have nothing to do with, with this, with animal fats. 
It's much more to do with industrial seed oils and sugar. <laughs> so some of the benefits of healthy fats, um, talked about them a little bit. And when I'm saying healthy, again, primarily animal fats, the, the, using the right kind of plant fats, um, are going to be needed for proper absorption of some nutrients, things like those fat-soluble vitamins A, D, E, and K. If you, you could get a bunch of them in supplemental form, but if you don't have enough fat in the diet, especially saturated fat, you will not absorb them. They're not going to do you any good. Um, so you need them for absorbing nutrients. A lot of them have, actually have antioxidant properties. We think of fats as maybe, maybe negative or even neutral, or like, okay, I guess I need them, but some of them are very much antioxidants, like the omega-3s, um, which, you know, will help with inflammation and, and all these things and preventing free radical damage. Supporting cellular health, immune function, digestive wellness, and modulating inflammation. So fats like arachidonic acid, which is a, a type of polyunsaturated fat found in animal foods, things like lard um, and, and egg yolks and all those great foods, actually are really necessary for immune function and for digestive function. So if you have a deficiency of those, of, of that type of fat, you can get like dry, flaky skin, eczema, things like that, but also a lot of food intolerances. So it, it's you know, important to get enough of that so that we don't have this long list of things I can't eat, <laughs> not that I don't eat. Uh, you know, there's so many foods that we just keep, we keep taking out even though they've been, they've been in our diet for so long and we're just, we're starting to see kind of this domino effect of like, sure, there was heart disease and, and things like that, but now we're seeing more and more allergies and these kind of like chronic illnesses, even in children, right, because we're not getting them the, the, the nutrition they need. If you look at a bottle, or a carton, canister of baby formula, you know, the fats that are in there, <laughs> um, and I understand everyone can't, can't necessarily nurse. Um, and there's lots of, lots of solutions around that. But the, fa- the type of fats that are in baby formula are these, are these like unhealthy, you know, highly refined polyunsaturated fats that they're getting way too much of from, from birth, right? So we're seeing it kind of just increase chronic illness as we go through the generations. Healthy fats also help with blood sugar control and satiety. Uh, so when you think of people dying, Going on like low-fat diets, it's absolutely counterproductive because Indians never tried to be on a low-fat diet, but you're going to be hungry all the time, and your blood sugar is going to be all over the place, um, and that's kind of counterproductive. <laughs> um, also, fats are needed for skin, heart health, vision, pregnancy, and growth. Again, a lot of those are those uh, omega-3 fats found in fish um, and, the, and those types of foods, but also even the kind that are found in nuts and seeds in their whole form and found in animal foods. So they're, not, they're very, very important, especially during periods of growth, so childhood, pregnancy, or during illness. Um, needed to maintain hormone balance, so that's important for you know, during puberty and other times of hormone change, and supporting mental health. So this is a big one. You know, Obviously, there's a, a kind of its own uh, epidemic of mental health crises in this in this kind of modern society, not just our country. Um, and omega-3 fats are so, so important for the brain. So when we, av- when we avoid high-fat foods, these are some of the things that we're not getting the benefit of. I feel like there's something else I was going to say about fish, and it just left my brain. So great. <laughs> I'll think of it. Um, okay, so eating nose to tail. Obviously, from point one, you you know that I'm really into eating animals. I was vegan for about five years, um, which did not serve me well. And so that's when I really dove into ancestral diets, and and none of them were vegan, at least not all the time. So if we're going to eat animals, this is how we have to eat them, the whole entire animal, um, uh, without much exception. (laughs) Uh, you know, a true, true ancestral diets would include things like blood, skin, eyes, just pretty much every part you could think of. There's, you know, there's not much that you can't use it for, <laughs> use an animal for. Um, there's a big focus on eating meat. So setting aside, like, the, the group of people who don't want to eat meat, the folks who do, there's a lot of focus on eating meat, which I think is very, very important. I think most people don't get enough protein. Um, 
But again, you know, there's so much, uh, most of what the protein we consume from animals is the meat, so the muscles. So most of what you think of as meat is muscle, right? It's really important that we add organ meats to balance out, to balance out the intake of meat. And I'll, I'll get to why here in, a, here in a minute. But So that would be the organ meats that, again, your grandmother, certainly my grandmother, um, and recent ancestors certainly ate like liver, heart, tongue, kidney, brain, all the parts that would, are, can, can be hard to get today um, are really, really important and often missing. So someone could be eating, I was trying to think of like someone who might be like, I had this really amazing healthy diet. I had, for dinner, I had a chicken breast and brown rice and broccoli. And I'd be like, I guess that sounds pretty, I mean, there's no like sugar, but you're missing some things because like maybe the chicken breast didn't have skin on it and you know, maybe there wasn't, you didn't add any fats to your, to your broccoli, and then you, so you didn't absorb any of the vitamins, you know, so thinking about, like, this idea of what we have as healthy, it's like, well, how many times did you have organ meats this week? And, you know, if you didn't have them at all, you're probably going to have to start, it may be helpful to start thinking about retooling your diet to include them, and also things like broth, so collagen-rich foods, um, a lot of people take collagen supplements, which is, you know, much better than like a, certainly a soy protein powder. But um, collagen is a huge, is huge part of, of ancestral diets. Again, the whole, we're talking about the whole animal. So foods like broth that you can make from the bones that would have, you know, be very difficult otherwise to get some nutritional value unless you really cook them down and then consume that broth. So these are the kind of foods that that you don't see a lot of. They're starting to come back. Like, you can buy bone broth at the store. You can get uh, pate sometimes. But they're, not, they're usually not part of most people's kind of, like, weekly cooking routine. So these are, these are important, and here's, here's why. So there's more nutrient density in organ meats. Obviously, the muscle meats are where all the protein is. And, again, I would say most people don't get enough protein. Um, you know, somewhere in the half to one gram of protein per person, unless you have some sort of health issue, and that's not medical advice, that's a general, general recommendation, but most people don't get that, you know. Some people really struggle to get 30, 40, 50 grams of protein when, for an average-sized person, you might need to be getting at least 100, you know, and that can be really hard to get, if you, especially if you're not getting uh, meat in, um, so that's more nutrient, that's more dense in protein. But the other nutrients like vitamin A, vitamin D, um, which there is, there are both of those in, in organ meats, um, are going to be are going to be only available really in the organ meats. Other things like zinc and copper um, are going to be much more available in these organ meats. And you only need small amounts, which is really nice. <laughs> My general kind of rule is having liver, you know, as an example. Liver's a pretty much the most nutrient-dense food I can possibly think of in terms of vitamin and mineral content. And you really only need a few ounces once or twice a week to get, it's kind of like taking a, a supplement because you need a small amount. And if you don't like it, you can always, my trick is to plug your ears <laughs> as I hide it <laughs> um, by grinding it, grinding it up or you know, chopping it finely and mixing it with anything where we would have, have ground meat. So you don't have to just eat liver and onions, although some people like it, but anytime you're doing ground meat, like meatloaf or meatballs or chili or, or some other, what other food do I put it in? Maybe you don't even know, because <laughs> I, I, I hide it. Um, that's a great way to mix in organ meats, and not just liver. Hearts, chicken hearts chop up really nice, and no one ever knows they're in there. Um, so, so that's a really nice way to, to hide it, especially if you're not used to it. Certainly, people can take supplements, but I'm always food first. Um, and, and you know, something like another example would be heart. People have maybe heard of CoQ10 as a supplement for like heart health. The, high, the food with the most amount of CoQ10 is the heart. Hmm. Kind of that like, like cures like type of thing, right? So eating heart, super duper high in CoQ10, proven to support heart health. So there's some, there's some wisdom here. Um, there's not CoQ10 in any plant foods that I know of in any significant amount. So. And back to more of the broth and eating things with the skin, like eating a piece of meat without the skin just seems, well, beef, I guess, is a little bit harder, but like I'm thinking of like poultry without the skin, fish without the skin, just seems 
crazy to me because there's so much nutrition there, but I'm sure when a lot of us are growing up, we're told to like take the skin off or eat a boneless, skinless chicken breast, which is like, <laughs> it's hard to make taste good. Yeah, again, add a lot of, a lot of flavoring to it. Um, but we need that collagen for, again, this like cures like type of thing, or not even cures, but like, like supports like, where the collagen from, this, from the skin and the bones supports our connective tissue, right? Or when we have like a big uh, piece of meat that's got like the tendons and cartilage and things and we slow cook it and all that breaks down and we can eat it, that supports our connective tissue. So our skin, our joints, those types of things where sure people can take a collagen supplement, but it's pretty easy to use, to use bone broth in your cooking. Um, it all, also, things with collagen, the broths and things like that are so, so important for gut health. There are... There are amino acids in them, especially glutamine, that's really integral for healing the, the lining of the gut. If you've ever heard of leaky gut, things like that, where the actual lining of the intestines is, is damaged and compromised, the, the amino acids in the broth actually help kind of tighten those up and heal them. So we can't, we can't, live, we, we can't live a healthy life without these foods. And again, j- joints, skin, those types of things. But... Um, We've, we've just been without them for so long. So again, you could, you could see how, oh, I'm eating this really healthy diet, but I haven't had anything with collagen in it. You know, it's easy to kind of go back through and be like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to be getting those, those foods. Um, so the next point, supporting mental health and methylation. Um, essentially, there's, there's, other, there's other nutrients and amino acids in these foods that, <clears throat> pardon me, that support these processes so... Um, when we get out of balance, especially with glycine, that's an amino acid that's going to be in these, in these kind of organ meats, these odd bits, the skin, the bone, or, you know, the bone broth and things like that, that can actually affect our mental health. So um, both with both um, kind of the, the overactive and underactive side. So with, this has to do with methylation, and I, I'm not, I won't go super deep into that or anything, but, you know, issues like depression or anxiety, things like that where our, our mental health is out of balance, a lot of times there are these nutrients that are missing um, because we're not supporting these processes that our body really needs. One of the key things to think about when it's like, well, why do I really need these? I could just take a, I could take a supplement to get, like I could take a, a glycine or a glutamine supplement or vitamin A and D. Um, you know, we think about the, the bottom point, which is there's, if we're going to eat meat and we're going to eat animals, it's really important to think about how, how we're eating them affects, affects the whole food system, right? Like we want to have a sustainable food system. Well, just taking the, the muscle meats and tossing the rest is not, is not a sustainable option, right? So there's, there's so much food waste that, that is produced when we're, just, when we're just paying these. First of all, paying a lot for these, these muscle cuts. So there's lower cost when you're getting... Um, when you're getting these organ meats, although now people are starting to catch on and they're getting more expensive, but you used to be able to get liver from even a good source for, you know, a few dollars a pound, and if you go to a city now, they're, they've caught on. But it's <laughs> um, like, oh, yeah, people are starting to eat that. Um, but, yeah, overall, you're getting lower cost. Certainly, it's going to be cheaper per pound than a porterhouse <laughs> and much more nutrient-dense. And you're also supporting farmers who... Have this, you know, when the when you're buying directly from farmers, which which you should. I think I saw Max. You could try Farm Match. No, um, uh, you're supporting farmers because they have this product. They want to sell as much as they can. And if all people are buying are these muscle cuts, there's so much that they are kind of missing out on. We, we want them to keep farming <laughs> um, and support, you know, like honoring the animals too, right? Like they lived their whole life. They they gave their life essentially so we can. We, we can continue and do the things we need to do and be part of the life cycle, but we're just throwing all of these pieces away. So that's a big part of it. Um, oh, I, get, I, sk- I skipped point four, which is, I'll go back to more of the nutritional and less of the <laughs> philosophical part, but um, this, has to, this point's really important because you're going to hear people talk about that meat is bad for you. Meat causes cancer. Meat causes heart disease. All this stuff. I'm sure it's it's been on the cover of Time, and then it was on the cover of Time, then it doesn't. You know, it's like you never know what to think with Sorry. You never know what to think with nutritional science because apparently it's changing all the time. But again, 
It doesn't really change if we go back and study how people ate before there was food processing. It just it doesn't change. Um, so when people talk about the negative effects of eating meat, this is a big part of what they're talking about, even if they don't know it, which is, yes, if you get too, if you get too, much, uh, too much of an imbalance in your amino acids, you can get a lot of health problems. Yes. Um, a lot of times what you're going to see, though, is, is this ratio because of eating too much meat and not enough organ meats. So methionine is an amino acid very abundant in muscle meats. So you're getting a lot of that. Definitely need it. <laughs> It's, an, it's essential, but when you primarily eat muscle meats and you don't eat the, the organ meats and the, the, the collagen-rich foods that have a lot of the glycine in them, you're going to have that imbalance. And that's when we th see things like a lot of inflammation and risk of cardiovascular events and things like that. So when someone says, like, oh, meat's really bad for you for X, Y, or Z reason, and there are studies they can point to, this has a lot to do with it, in my opinion. And we can, we can prove them wrong by <laughs> eating lots of organ meats. Um, there's a few other things they might point to, um, but this, this, is a, this is a biggie. Number three, it wouldn't be a talk by me if I didn't talk about fermented foods. <laughs> um, we have a few jars in our fridge. Is this? <laughs> okay. Don't have to laugh that much. Um, yeah, we have a few jars in our fridge. Um, so... Again, a super healthy diet can be like, I eat tons of fruits and vegetables. Well, if they're all raw or even cooked, you know, I think it's good to have a balance of all of these. But we, are any of them fermented? We need a lot of fermented foods. Of course, fermented foods, if you're not super familiar, are foods transformed by microbial growth um, into a totally new food. So think cabbage into sauerkraut, milk into yogurt, uh, pork into uh, prosciutto, you know, those types of things. Any type, it, usually when we're talking about fermented foods, we're talking about bacterial fermentation, but certainly yeast, wine, right? Sometimes we'll be able to have that again someday. Um, um, uh, but also, you know, there's, there's other types of, there's other types of ferment, fermented foods other than vegetables, but that's kind of an easy one to, to incorporate. But again, this is, this is something that was present in, in all ancestral diets because they didn't have refrigeration. Although we have, you know, I'm sure they, depending on where they live, they could cut the ice like we hear the Amish do a lot <laughs> so uh, from the ponds. But before refrigeration, fermenting foods was the way to preserve them um, along with drying, salting, things like that. But so it was born, I guess you could say, out of necessity. But what we know now through lots of rigorous science, is that they're really important foods as specifically sources of probiotics. Now, not all fermented foods are probiotic, um, so that's not true for 100%. So things like vinegar, vinegar is a fermented food. It's not really probiotic um, because it's, it's so acidic that, you know, that impairs microbial, microbial growth. You know, you use it to preserve things. So it's no longer probiotic, but it's, it is prebiotic. So... Um, most, most of the fermented foods you're going to think of are probiotic, which means they have the beneficial bacteria in them um, that when you consume them don't necessarily colonize the gut. There's not a lot of good evidence for that, that they like what, when you eat the probiotics, they like stay in there. There's not, it's not super strong. But while they go through your system, um, they are conferring benefit to the host, which is you. <laughs> um, and that is certainly good reason to, to eat them. Prebiotics are also present in a lot of fermented foods, which is becoming more, that's, that's a term that's becoming more, more well-known. Essentially, it's a, a type of fiber that, when it goes into your body, it actually feeds the bacteria that you're eating. So that's kind of why it's in that same, that same kind of category. So biotic meaning life. So it's going to be providing a, a food a substrate to the, to the bacteria and yeast in your body. Postbiotics, I don't know if anyone's ever heard that term. That's much newer. So this is the idea, um, and this would include things like enzymes and organic acids that are produced kind of as a byproduct of, of, the, of the probiotics. So probiotics live, die, and then while they're, either while they're living, they exude kind of waste products. They are living. <laughs> um, or after they die, it's, you know, part of, 
part of their structure, their body, whatever you want to call it, still provides some benefit. So they've now found that even the, the things that the bacteria, the probiotics themselves exude have some health benefit to them, something like butyric acid, which is you know, helpful for uh, colon health is made by, by beneficial bacteria. So food, the food, fermented foods have all these types of biotics in them that benefit digestion. So they can, again, this can be vegetables, dairy, you can ferment legumes, so things like tempeh and miso, um, natto, depending on where you live, what kinds you're going to consume, or beverages like kombucha, kefir, those types of things. My general rule, I guess it's a rule, as having if you're looking to start incorporating these foods into your diet, is one serving of something a day. So it doesn't mean you have to go eat a whole jar of kimchi in one day, and I certainly wouldn't start there, especially if you, have, um, if you live with people, but um, <laughs> um, starting with one serving day, it could be a teaspoon of sauerkraut, could be four to six ounces of kombucha, could be a cup of yogurt. It doesn't have to be your whole diet, but um, that's a, a good place to start. And Certainly you can take probiotic capsules, and there are definitely therapeutic uses for those, depending on the, on the person, especially some people can't tolerate fermented foods if they have gut issues. Um, but starting with one serving a day is a good place to start, and even better is trying to do one per meal, which we try to do, but depending on the day, it can be hard. So if you've heard of these probiotics, the, the kind of main thing they're known for is supporting digestive health. Again, it's as they pass through is the, the primary time that they're kind of giving you the benefits. So the more often you're eating them, the better. And the more diverse, the better, I guess you would say. So sure, it's great to get sauerkraut and have sauerkraut every day, but it's even better if you can do yogurt and kefir and sauerkraut and incorporate these things in, in, the, in a lot of diversity because they all have different beneficial bacteria and yeasts. Um, probiotics are not just bacteria. There are, there are good yeasts out there, too. We need them. Um, so they help support the microbiome, which has benefit on the, to the brain, the immune system. Probably like to support that. Uh, decreased inflammation, weight management, all these things have been linked to a healthy microbiome, which is essentially the, the ecosystem, the inner ecosystem of your body. We think of the microbiome as the gut microbiome, which it certainly has its own, but every part of your body has a microbiome. The mouth, the eyes, the lungs, the you know, the skin, every, you know, really every part of your body has its own microbiome that fermented foods are, are going to help support, um, primarily the gut. But again, when we're adding in these beneficial bacteria and providing balance and providing food to them through prebiotics, they're going to thrive and grow in the whole body. Fermented foods sometimes have increased nutrient content. An example of this would be um, when, you ferment, when you ferment cabbage into into sauerkraut or kimchi or whatever. Every kind of culture has a fermented cabbage food, but <laughs> um, you increase the nutritional content of, of some of the things in there, including B12. So B12 is really only in animal foods in any significant amount. Fermentation does create some because the microbes are living. You need, you need kind of something living to have B12. Um, and something like cheese, a fermented food. Oh, good. <laughs> um, a nice raw milk cheese, going to be nice and probiotic. Um, the longer age, the better. So that's something to think about. But it's going to have more of a, a, nutrient, a nutrient called vitamin K2. It's kind of gaining some popularity in that it acts kind of like a signal to calcium. So when you eat calcium, which is in cheese and all sorts of other uh, dairy foods, it signals it where to go in the body. So when you take a calcium supplement, or eat a calcium-rich food, it enters the body, and it really needs vitamin K2 to tell it where to go, which is primarily you want to go to the teeth and bones, right? Um, and not into places like soft tissues and the, the kidneys or the arteries or things where it can really cause calcification and, and plaque buildup. So we need that K2, and a lot of people don't get very much K2 in the diet because we avoid, the, or we avoid or don't include the foods that have it, like fermented foods. It's also high in things like egg yolks, and full-fat dairy. <laughs> so again, when we're avoiding these foods, we're not going to get some of the benefit. Um, and those are just some of the examples. It also helps um, maintain nutrition. So if you think about uh, canning, which canning is not necessarily a bad thing, but 
a lot of the nutrients are removed because it's high heat and high pressure, right? So things like vitamin C and potassium are gonna start to be destroyed. Fermentation, you don't have that. You maintain a lot of those nutrients. It's high vitamin C content. Um, so, you know, we don't have a lot of, if you're really eating seasonally, you don't have a lot of fruit around right now. Sauerkraut and fermented cabbage is a very good source of vitamin C. It improves the digestibility and lowers the anti-nutrient content of a lot of the foods that you're eating. So. Thinking about things like beans, if you ferment them into something like tempeh or miso, you're going to decrease the content of anti-nutrients, and we're gonna talk about that a little more in a second um, with, the, with the, next, the next slide, but you're going to make them more digestible. Um, with, something like, with something like fermenting milk, so into kefir or yogurt or cheese, a lot of times people who don't tolerate dairy for lactose intolerance can tolerate those foods pretty well because fermentation kind of cons like the fermentation process decreases the amount of lactose. So you're thinking about these foods that like um, maybe wouldn't be very digestible to a human, but once we start fermenting them, they're very digestible. Another example is sourdough bread. Many people who don't tolerate gluten, although I could probably do a whole talk on that, um, can do sourdough bread because it's, this long fermentation process starts to break down um, things like gluten, so you can digest them. That's not true for everyone, but again, this, this is a big part of it. And plants as well. Plants aren't highly digestible, um, and fermenting them makes them more digestible. And it also is a great food storage option if you don't want to just refrigerate everything forever, and they have a very long shelf life. Fermented vegetables like sauerkraut have a shelf life of a year in the fridge, so it's really helpful. Oh, I guess the, the, the plant thing will be next, but bitter foods. I'm very passionate about this uh, because, again, uh, gut health is kind, of my, is kind of my niche, and I think this is a huge thing I see missing, missing in people's diets. So before there was, like, processing, food processing and, uh, like, selective breeding for certain traits, uh, like if you picture a red delicious apple, that took a lot of work to make those look that way. <laughs> um, and they're fine, but they don't really taste like much. Uh, but they look pretty, and they look like an apple. But when we breed foods for, for appearance and yield rather than nutrient content, we lose a lot. Of course, we lose nutritional value, but we lose some of these other flavors that are in there. And ancestral diets were high in bitter compounds, bitter-tasting foods. Um, and, you know, there's the breeding and processing, but there's also just as we consume more and more processed foods, we want more and more processed foods. So right now our preference is for things that are sweet or salty or savory, and we kind of we turn our nose up at, at things that are bitter. It seems undesirable, even though it's an important part of the diet. So examples of what I'm talking about would be things like bitter greens, like um, mustard greens, yeah, um, or even like radicchio. That's not a green, but <laughs> it's leafy. Things, bitter lettuces, um, citrus peels, cocoa, you know, cocoa is definitely a part of many traditional diets, but now we add a lot of like milk and sugar to it, which kind of takes away the bitter. <laughs> um, hops, those are more, becoming more popular in beer, so that's good in a way, I guess. Um, tea and coffee, quite bitter. Again, when we add lots of sugar to them, it kind of takes away some of that bitter taste. And there's many, many bitter herbs. And that can be a really nice way to start getting more bitter taste into the diet um, through things like digestive bitters, which are just seem magical to me uh, in, terms of, in terms of herbal medicine um, for the digestive system. So that's some example of bitter foods. There's, there's many others, but those are some of the, some of the biggies. Um, so why are they important? Really, really important because they stimulate digestion. So... They kind of tell your body to secrete and go and, and move. So they, starting from, you know, digestion begins in the mouth. I, well, physiologically, probably even in the brain. But um, we'll, <laughs> we'll start in the mouth. It, they stimulate salivation, which the saliva has enzymes in it. So if you're taking digestive enzymes, your body produces its own. And bitters helps. Bitters is like your body, a natural way to tell your body make digestive enzymes. So um, it's, it helps with salivation, producing stomach acid, 
producing your own enzymes from your pancreas, um, promoting bile flow, liver function and detoxification, and gut motility, so how, which is how quickly your food moves through your gut, which is very important for preventing um, pathogenic growth, um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, candida, things like that. We want things to move to, through at a good pace. Um, and some bitter foods can also be prebiotic, so things like dandelion root or those bitter herbs can act in a prebiotic way as well. Um, the cool thing about bitters, I don't know why I think it's so cool, but there's receptors all over your body. So when you think of bitter, you're thinking about your taste buds, right, where you taste it. You've seen the chart of where they are on the tongue. But bitter is the only taste that has taste receptors, essentially, all over throughout your digestive system. Um, I shouldn't say all over the body. That might be a, like hyperbolic. But um, throughout the digestive tract and also in the lungs, there are bitter receptors. So we know that this is an important compound to get, or you know, important category of foods to get, because there are receptors throughout the digestive system. So when we don't get them, your body's not going to digest food well. So, and you know, I see a ton of, of of digestive problems that have to do with things just not moving, things being stagnant. So, bitter foods and herbs encourage movement and secretions and prevent stagnation, which is really what we want um, when we think about how do we get better digestion. They also have other benefits, including promoting blood sugar balance and satiety. So, when you have bitter in your meal, think about uh, this is like more co common in Europe, like to have an espresso after dinner or something like that. So it's one, it's going to be great for your digestion, and they don't put a bunch of sugar and cream in it. <laughs> it's not a latte. It's a shot of espresso. It's, gonna, it's going to help with digesting the food you just ate, but it also promotes feeling full so if you, and, and having blood sugar balance. So if you all have only like sweet and salty and savory foods, you're not going to have that same, that same feeling of satiety as when bitters are present. It's really important. <laughs> Okay, two more. We're talking a lot. Um, fiber. It's hard to get enough fiber for a lot of people, even if you are eating healthfully. So I know I was, like, kind of dogging on um, plant foods before, but I think it's just because they get, like, worshipped a little bit too much. <laughs> um, and plants are magical, and we definitely should include them in a diet. But I have, I have such a passion for including animal foods, so I get a little... Um, I don't know, persnickety about plants. But fiber, you need them because they're really found in plant foods. They're removed, you know, fibers removed through processing. So things like white flour, um, you know, when it's processed, it takes away, takes away all the fiber. There are different types of fiber. Um, there's soluble and insoluble, which has to do, like, really with how it acts if you mix it into water. <laughs> um, and many act as prebiotics, again, the types of fiber that feed the gut bacteria. There's also a type of a fiber, a, a kind of a type of fiber called resistant starch that really, um, it's called resistant because it makes it all the way through your digestive system to the colon and feeds the bacteria there, which is not all fiber does that. And it's really important for like colonic health. So there's different types to get, to get but it, in general, if you get a wide variety of plant foods, you're going to, you're going to do this. But in terms of thinking of like, how, how, what does it have to do with ancestral diet? There are studies of an, ancestral diets having 50 to 100 or even up to 120 grams of fiber a day. I don't know if anyone could like imagine how hard that would be to get now. Um, when the RDA from like the government is 25 grams for women and 38 grams per men. So people, the average in the United States is getting 15 grams. So thinking about like, well, if, if it, if we need it for the gut, and I'll talk about the benefits in a minute, if we really, really need it, getting 15 grams is not going to be enough. So I'm not suggesting we all try to go out and get 100 grams a day. You're probably going to spend a while on the toilet. But you can, you can certainly work up to getting more. Um, but just, again, that kind of idea of um, the term I like to use is uh, evolutionary mismatch, so, or kind of an ancestral mismatch, which is like how our bodies are essentially, I'll say, designed to function and what they're designed to do. There's a mismatch between what we do now and what we are kind of meant to do. And obviously, there's a lot of health consequences to that. So if kind of over the past several thousand years, we would have been getting a significant amount of fiber 
per, per day, depending on where you, have, where you would have lived. Obviously, those super animal-based diets like those in the Arctic wouldn't have gotten this much, but um, many people would have gotten much more than they do now. So when there's a mismatch, they're, they're going to have health consequences. So some of the benefits of fiber, already mentioned prebiotics, so feeding the microbes in the gut. Fiber is also important for liver detoxification. Um, your liver can detoxify itself if given the right nutrients <laughs> um, and bitters. Um, also needed for hormone balance. When the liver is not able to detoxify properly, you can get a buildup of, uh, of things like estrogen in the body. And so we want to we get rid of excess hormones. And it also helps lower cholesterol. Um, although I wouldn't, do, I wouldn't like eat a box of Cheerios to, <laughs> to try to do that. I know they say heart healthy because the fiber... There's other foods to get, um, to get your fiber in. So fiber also helps create bulk and form stool, which helps remove toxins. Obviously, it's help, you know, that's good for regularity and, and having regular bowel movements, but a, a big function of the bowel movements is to get rid of toxins in the body, promoting motility, um, preventing pathogenic growth in the gut. So again, overgrowth of things we don't want. Um, and you can use food-based supplements like psyllium husk, and there's other types of supplements. But again, getting this nice balance of plant and animal foods, different types of plant foods, so leafy vegetables and also nuts and beans and roots and tubers and fruits, uh, balancing that with those animal foods. That's kind of the, what, the point of what I'm trying to get at, is you really need both in, in the right amounts and the right types. So... One thing I will say about fiber is some people will, may need to eliminate it for a healing period of time. So people with IBS, throwing a lot of fiber at them only makes things worse. Again, if you, if you have, don't have those good gut microbes, if you're, gonna, if you're feeding a bunch of fiber to your body and it's not getting broken down, you're going to have problems. But in general, most people are missing significant amounts of fiber. Okay, and the, the last one is proper preparation. So this isn't a food, but it's a... It's a type of, you know, it's a, something that our ancestral diets would have contained, which when I'm talking about proper preparation, I'm essentially talking about those four things at the bottom, sprouting, soaking, souring, and fermenting. So how we process certain foods really dictates how, how many nutrients are available in them and how we digest them. So I think this is a big piece of the puzzle in, a, in the modern diet. If you're familiar with the... Um, uh, diets or concepts like the the Weston Price Foundation, things like that. They talk a lot about like proper properly preparing your grains, um, but this is something like I think needs to be discussed more. So this is really important for seed based for seed foods. So anything that would be a seed, so grains, beans, nuts, and seeds. It's also helpful for helpful for things like dairy and vegetables for improving their digestibility. So. Examples of this would be like sprouted grains or um, when I say souring, so things like sourdough bread or fermenting. So again, going back to fermented foods, turning things like dairy into yogurt. Soaking, you can also soak grains and seeds and nuts and things like that. So why is this important? Increases digestibility, kind of goes back to to what we talked about with the making things like dairy and grains more tolerable. Instead of just jumping to, I need to take these foods out, maybe considering how am I preparing them? You know, it's no wonder that people can't tolerate gluten when, like, conventional wheat is sprayed with a bunch of chemicals, is, <laughs> um, and, and I think that's probably one of the biggest reasons we can't tolerate it, but sprayed with a bunch of chemicals, stored for a long time so they're, you know, basically rancid, processed into white flour, and then made with, you know, quick rising yeast, it's like, who could digest that, you know, versus uh, an heirloom variety of grain that hasn't been over-hybridized, that hasn't been sprayed, and then it's, you know, not stored for a long time, freshly ground to make your, to make your bread or whatever you're going to make, s- turning into sourdough before you make it. You know, that's a, those are two different foods, right? It's not just like, oh, I don't eat bread. Well, it's like, well, there's a lot of types of bread, <laughs> and how they affect your body are very different. So, and the same thing with beans and nuts. Like, a lot of people can't eat those foods because they cause digestive upset. Well, it's like, well, are you eating them raw? The seed foods aren't really meant to be eaten raw, including seeds and nuts. Um, there's also, this also decreases the anti-nutrients in these foods. So seed foods are, 
have anti-nutrients, which kind of essentially bind the minerals in them because they are supposed to be like not germinating. They're there for storage, right? So there's all these nutrients stored in them, and they're kind of waiting. They're dormant. And if you just eat them, you're not going to absorb a lot of those nutrients. You haven't unlocked. You haven't started the germination process. You haven't unlocked those nutrients. So by soaking, soaking was that tin? Perfect. By soaking, uh, sprouting, souring, those types of things, you essentially unlock those nutrients available. So things like zinc and magnesium that lots of people don't get enough of, especially magnesium, this prep these preparation methods make it so you can actually get them from your food. Um, lower, things like uh, sourdough bread and other, other types of preparation lower the glycemic index, so how, how much a, a starchy food, you know, these foods I'm talking about all have carbohydrates in them, how much they affect your blood sugar, increases the resistant starch, which when we talked about before, feeds the colon bacteria. And again, many can tolerate foods not previously tolerated after doing these traditional processing methods. So that's really important when we think about like, uh, we just avoid large categories of food, but we are missing that maybe we're just not preparing them in the right way. And the, those are the main six. The bon bonus one is mindfulness. Um, you know, I, I really think it's how we eat is just as important as what we eat. You know, thinking about, like, I could eat the perfect diet, include all six categories of foods, get enough protein, like, perfect sourcing. But if I'm always, like, scarfing down my food, eating on the go, like, grazing all day, and, like, eating when I'm stressed or, you know, you know, you've been there. <laughs> We've all wolfed down a meal and been like, oh, my stomach hurts. It's like, well, it wasn't the food. <laughs> um, so just really being mindful about how we eat is is really, really important. Um, learning some mindful eating practice, practices, thinking about why we choose the foods we do. Um, again, I think at, at the beginning, I just talked about like food is primarily for fuel, but we also need to enjoy it. We need to enjoy it with other people. <laughs> um, that's, that's another evolutionary mismatch, I think, like eating all of our meals alone um, is not really good for us. Um, and as I like to say, stress is the ultimate anti-nutrient, you know, Again, perfect diet, but if you're eating it while you're stressed, you're not in, um, maybe you've heard of fight or flight. That's part of your, you know, a branch of your nervous system. But the other side of that is that rest and digest. So when you're stressed, blood flow is diverted essentially from your digestive system into your, your circulatory system so you can run away. But um, <laughs> we don't want to eat when we're in that mode because we're not going to digest our food well. And that decreases our stomach acid and our enzyme, out, our enzyme production and things like that. So, again, it's not just like, well, I didn't eat gluten and sugar today. Well, it's like, yeah, but you ate all your meals in the car on the go or while you were, like, watching the news. Don't eat while you watch the news. Or don't watch the news, sorry. <laughs> that's, even, that's, a better, that's a better tip. But um, I just think of, like, stress is the ultimate anti-nutrient. So it's like, I would rather some somebody, and not every meal necessarily, but I'd rather somebody eat this meal that's like kind of like, you know, not the best sourcing or like, oh, maybe had a little extra sugar, but they're like not stressed. They're enjoying it. They're with people they love. You know, like you're going to digest that meal really well. Um, and then, you know, gratitude. It's, I, you know, when I was growing up, you like say grace before your meal and it doesn't even have to be necessarily spiritual practice, spiritual practice, but when you pause for a moment before you eat and think, you know, have gratitude for the animals and the plants and the farmers and, like, the people in the store and, you know, like, the whole, the whole chain that it took to get your food to you. Or if you grew it, you know, thanking yourself and the soil microbes and, like, you know, all the things that got your food to you, that gets you into rest and digest. That gets you out of fight or flight. And there's a lot of research behind that. So, again, kind of a, a traditional practice of, like, pausing before we eat, whether it's a prayer or whatever you're doing, or taking a few deep breaths. Yes, it has, you know, some non-physical purposes, but it should be a really big part of your diet because you'll, di you'll literally digest your food better. So that's the bonus one. <clears throat> 